0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Having taken over the security clearance apparatus, the Defense Department has been busy updating the technology process for clearance. But what about the criteria for granting or withholding clearance? A deep dive by the RAND Corporation says it might be time to revise them because, well, times have changed. For more, we turn to RAND social scientist and report co-author, Marek Posard. Mr. Posard, good to have you on.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: And you have found that there's a new generation of people potentially coming into the federal workforce or contractor workforce, for that matter, that needs security clearance, but they're millennial and younger, and therefore, what's the difference? So
0: what we argue in a report is that there are age-based trends, society changes, and younger generations might potentially be early signals for these broader changes. And as a result, you want to update the clearance process. And in particular, the standards by which you adjudicate who can get a clearance based on some of these social changes. So, for example, back in the 60s, homosexuality as well as cohabitation were considered risk factors. Today, they're not. And so what you want to look at is these broader social changes based on data to see where you might want to make adjustments, not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but see if there's adjustments that one can make within the criteria as well as the mitigating factors that might be relevant to particular applicants.
1: Yes, because the example that comes up so often is, well, if someone smokes pot or they take some illegal substance, which has been pretty much a rule out until now. But as these things gain, I guess, more social acceptance and now more legal acceptance, that's the kind of thing that might need to change.
0: Exactly. And one thing that we recommend in the report is that factoring in the local laws and jurisdictions of an applicant Because quite frankly, it's easy to find yourself in a situation where you might be increasing your risk profile, particularly just where you live. The example can be if you live in Maryland versus the District of Columbia versus Virginia versus West Virginia, there's this patchwork of laws surrounding marijuana use. And this is a perfect example of a broader social change where you want to not necessarily say, well, we're not going to use it as a criteria anymore, but saying you want to potentially adjust it because You don't want to dissuade people from applying for national security positions. You also don't want to artificially remove people from having those positions in the first place.
1: And you're also arguing that looking at financial distress and some of the financial issues surrounding people might be time for revision. Explain that one a little bit more.
0: So we've seen, I think it's pretty well documented, and we document this in our report as well, too, that there has been a dramatic increase in student loan debt. And that's predominantly by younger individuals. And there's two factors that we discuss in there related to security clearances and student loan debt. The first is that if you have student loan debt now, and then you end up forming a family, having children, buying a home, there's other types of debt that you're gonna take on. And so that could be a potential risk factor in the future because if you already have the student loan debt hanging over your head, and then you have these other types of debts for car loans or whatnot, when you start forming families, That might be a concern that you want to keep in mind. But with that being said, we actually recommend that one focus on the management of debts instead of whether you're fulfilling the debts. Because in many ways, you might be refinancing your loans. You might be on different types of payment plans. And given the nature of a lot of national security positions, you do in many cases need a college degree or a post-high school diploma, or some type of training to get into these positions in the first place, which for a lot of people requires them to take on debt. And so making sure they can manage the debt instead of just seeing if they have the debt or not or fulfilling the debt or not is going to be important.
1: And another area I wanted to ask about is associations and outside activities. And those have changed and morphed over the years, depending on you know societal change as to what is considered dangerous or unacceptable. What do you find in that whole area?
0: Well, today we just have more opportunities to interact with foreign nationals. Younger students today are more likely to study abroad than in the past. We also have more foreign nationals studying at our universities and the internet makes it quite easy to interact with a broad range of first populations. Now to be clear we're not saying that if you interact with someone from another country that you're automatically a risk but there might be risk profiles that change based on who you're interacting with and what countries they're from and so One nice place to look is the Office of the Director of National Intelligence does have assessments of countries that might be higher or lower risk. And on top of that, you want to also keep in mind that the people you're interacting with in other countries might be embedded in networks where they have individuals, either their friends or families who are working for foreign intelligence services or working for certain types of government agencies abroad that might increase the risk profile. So one thing that we propose is that that network is actually really important, not just the individual you talk to, but their network that they're connected to, just to take that into account when adjudicating who should get a clearance.
1: We're speaking with Marek Posard, social scientist and co-author of the RAND Corporation report on security clearance guidelines. What are some of the eternals that should still just automatically rule someone out, regardless of uh, what else they might do or be? Well,
0: one of the big ones that we identify in the report actually is digital personal conduct, but in particular, this Dramatic rise in child pornography cases, particularly those who are in their late 20s and 30s. And so there are certain things such as that where, you know, that should be an automatic uh, rejection if there's a clear case that can be made. And there's other instances, too, where if you do have direct contact with someone from a foreign intelligence service, that's going to raise a lot of flags. If you are doing heavy drugs and you have a track record of abuse of heavy drugs, particularly opioids, which is a problem in certain parts of the country, those might increase your risk profile. I I do want to note that it's not a black and white decision. We all have risks in our life. You have risks in your life. I have risks in my life. The government's just trying to assess and wait if those risks are acceptable enough to hold a clearance. So even if one does have certain types of risks, the question really does, is it acceptable enough? And so I think it's just clarifying that for individuals. It's never really a black and white decision.
1: Earlier, you mentioned in prior decades, homosexuality was a rule out. And just maybe to be charitable to the people back then, maybe they thought that was because people could be blackmailed. Homosexuals could be blackmailed because in those days, because it wasn't socially unremarkable as it is now. Is there anything today that subjects people to potential blackmail or openness to bribery by foreign powers?
0: Well, I mean, I would argue that when you have to hide who you are let it be your sexual orientation, let it be your gender identity, that creates opportunities for our adversaries to exploit. And so I think it's always better for people to just be forthcoming of who they are, and our guidelines should be accepting for people for who they are. And I think what we've seen over time is that the guidelines have been revised accordingly to get away from some of those kinds of all or nothing types of risk profiles or risk assessments. And I think today it really is a matter of just, again, weighting these factors. And I, I don't necessarily think there's anything equivalent to homosexuality or, or anything related to gender identity issues that you're seeing in the guidelines today. But with that being said, I think those are great lessons in the past of what not to do. And I think that we've seen how society's changes in terms of their acceptance of these various factors that were once considered risks. And I think it's a good lesson of what not to do going forward.
1: And so the new criteria that you have suggested here that you argue for, the new set of criteria, how does that get into place? What do you recommend as a process for evaluating and then coming up with something that everybody can agree to, Defense Department, Intelligence Community, Congress?
0: Well- Ultimately, the government is continuously reassessing these guidelines, and the guidelines are are housed right now in in what they call the SE84, and those are constantly being reassessed. And I think it's just a matter of really kind of going through each of the guidelines and the risk factors and mitigating factors and seeing where there can be potential tweaks and adjustments made. One thing that we do argue in the report is that the data that we use to kind of give a broad overview of these trends Most of it's freely available, and most of it's actually collected by the federal government. And so what you want to do is monitor these types of trends over time and make the adjustments over time gradually instead of just kind of doing a one-shot deal. We outline all the data sources that we looked at, and there's many more out there. I mean, an example that I would give is that if you look at, for example, the opioid crisis – that's a risk factor, particularly if you're surrounded or have interaction or have experimented with certain types of highly addictive drugs. And I think it's important for the government just to kind of keep tabs on those trends earlier rather than later so they can make adjustments accordingly and probe accordingly to make sure that people uh, they're not taking unnecessary risks by giving someone a clearance.
1: It sounds like this new idea of continuous monitoring using third-party data sources and the government's own tools can really aid in that constant adjustment and knowing when someone might need to be rechecked. For example, I would say, and you can confirm this if I'm right or wrong, the sudden acquisition of large debts or the sudden acquisition of really expensive properties could be a clue that someone needs to be examined.
0: Exactly. And they already do a lot of this already. And I think one thing that we propose is that our data, we're looking at broad trends, not individualized data. And so what you can kind of get a feel for is where are there potential trends that might be of concern? Where are there potential trends that might signal an adjustment? But we're not necessarily saying we should look at your individual profile over time. It's more, there's an investigative process that does this with one's consent. But there are these broader social changes when you want to kind of assess the guidelines that you want to keep on top of. So you don't have outdated guidelines that might dissuade people or outdated guidelines that might unnecessarily ding people for a risk that really isn't a risk after all.
1: And ultimately, do we really know about any individual anyhow? If you look at the last several decades of turncoats that have turned up in spectacular cases, they were the most ordinary, unremarkable people you could think of, starting with Edward Snowden and on back.
0: You're right. Exactly. And the process really has, this, they call it the whole person is basically, they, they look at the whole person when making these kinds of decisions, right? And so there's a lot of different variables in our lives that you can weight. The investigations are very individually based. So there's not a cookie cutter model necessarily that one can apply. And I think it's just a matter of really kind of adjusting that criteria because we're not going to catch every potential Snowden. But on the flip side of it, we want to make sure we can increase the probability of detecting problematic or risky types of life events that might signal a potential Snowden. Although we're never going to be perfect with it, we want to try to pick up those signals as best
1: we can. Marek Posard is a social scientist and co-author of the RAND Corporation Report on Security Clearance Guidelines. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA.
2: Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the... Conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, Since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, Great man theory, the leader follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then Translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I, think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over two million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers. Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social Uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors and it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him it inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. Uh, I've led, this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to. Leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service.
0: This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally,